Hey, you're listening to Rock and or Roll. I'm BJ, and you're in for a treat on today's episode. I had the opportunity to have a conversation with Stuart Harper, who was the sometimes chastity belt sporting frontman for a junk shop glam band called Iron Virgin. Iron Virgin was a Scottish band formed in 1972, and they swiftly adopted a glam rock sound and image given the time period. They released two singles with Dearham in 1974. The first single was a version of Jet by Wings, and the second single was an original song, which has since become a cult classic called Rebel's Rule. A very fun, foot-stomping cross between Sweet and Slade. I actually played Rebel's Rule on the second ever episode of the podcast about glam rock, and since then I've done a couple of episodes about junk shop glam. I will get those episodes back in the feed soon. But on today's episode, not only do we get to hear Stuart tell the story of Iron Virgin and the bands that he formed after Iron Virgin, we get to hear previously unreleased music from the bands that Stuart formed after Iron Virgin. So this is still in the 70s. Stuart fronted two more bands, a band called Miami and then a band called Orchid. And both bands made some recordings, and you will get to hear some of those songs on this episode. I have to say, just about the coolest thing I could imagine being able to do with the podcast is to share songs that no one has ever heard before. It's definitely a privilege. So I will break in throughout the episode to explain some of what we're hearing. But like I said, we're going to get to hear Stuart Harper tell his story. And in between, we're going to get to hear some of this great unreleased music that Stuart recorded with the bands Miami and Orchid. Stand up! Stand up! Stop, 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 I would love to hear the story of how you ended up in a glam rock band called Iron Virgin. Like, how did you get into music and how did that band end up forming? Probably wasn't your first band, right? Well, no, it wasn't the first band. You know, when I, I was at uh, secondary school, high school, as you would call it. Uh, we had s- small groups that they didn't play any gigs, just, you know, like garage bands. You just play in each other's houses. And so you progress from there. I was in a couple of small bands uh, that did gig. Then I went off to, to London. Now, I'd been, before I went to London, uh, I roaded for a few bands. And one of the bands was. Uh, had two members, uh, Gordon McIntosh and Jimmy Devlin, and they ended up with Brian and uh, Bilbo. Mm-hmm. So I'd gone down to London, and they decided they wanted to form a new band. And I said, well, I don't particularly like it down here. I'm, I'm going to come back home. So we formed a band, uh, brought in uh, a drummer, and called ourselves Plain Jane. Now, we were probably we were doing covers, although we were starting to write our own material. But basically, the band was pretty much like free. So we do a lot of uh, free covers. And then uh, Gordon and Jimmy Devlin uh, decided that they were going to go and form another band. 
So I was kind of left in the, the lurch. But they said, oh, there's uh, one of the managers of uh, one of the clubs in Edinburgh has heard of this band Iron Virgin. They're looking for a, a new singer. So I joined the, the three of them. And essentially, they were pretty much a rock band at the time. We'd maybe been playing for about a year. And then uh, a producer uh, from Decca, who was uh, Thin Lizzy's uh, producer, had come up to see a band uh, in Edinburgh. And for some reason, it fell through. And he happened to bump into one of the girls that we knew. She uh, says, oh, I, I know a band that you, you could go and see. So he came along, went to one of the gigs, came back, you know, thought there was a lot of potential. So it ended up, we, we played for the, the Decca Christmas party in Mayfair in London. And uh, after that, uh, they offered us a recording contract. But what happened was, Scots are pretty canny, and we we <laughs> we're always looking at the money. We're always trying to get the best deal. So, what we did was we were negotiating by phone, and we did it over the space of I think five nights. So what we did was we rigged up a reel-to-reel uh, tape and we recorded the phone calls. So I'd be on the phone talking to uh, people at Decca and the rest of the band would be in another room listening through uh, a hi-fi system uh, rigged to the tape. So we recorded it and then once the call was finished, we'd play the tape back and we were able to minutely go over everything that was said and then the following night we would pick up on things and renegotiate now it started off at one percent and by the end of the week it was ten percent which was actually a really good deal at the time uh, considering the, the Beatles were probably only on, on about three quarters of a percent initially probably only when they they'd done about three or four albums did they, they manage to get more at the EMI? So the, the producer had got uh, McCartney had just put his album out, Band in the Run, and he sent a demo. Now it had only come out in the States at that point. So he sent a demo and said, Oh, we want you to do this. And we weren't too happy about it because we really wanted to do our own stuff. So we went down uh, to record it, and at that time, it was just before Christmas in 73, and we had power strikes, and uh, what happened was the voltage started to fluctuate, unknown to us. We didn't notice it in the studio. So we then found out probably the day after Christmas that the, the tapes were totally useless. So we had to go back down and re-record it. So once we'd done that, uh, they were going to put it out, but Decca weren't a great company for being uh, innovative. And I first thing I said was, look, I want the, this to go out the first week of January. And they said, oh, we can't do that. And I says, why not? 
Nobody does it. I says, but that's the whole point. There's no opposition. The radio stations will play it because they've got no new product. So they then find excuses like Tom Jones has got a, uh, his new single that we're putting out. And we said, Tom Jones is in Vegas. He's not going to be selling records here, not in any great volume. But they kept finding more and more reasons for not doing it. So we thought, well, what do we do? We thought, if we can get hold of McCartney, we can maybe persuade them to put out Band in the Run rather than Jet as a single. So we had to start trying to find out where he was. So we were making phone calls all over the place. Eventually spoke to Wanda uh, Eastman, Wanda uh, Eastman's brother, I think it was uh, John Eastman. Uh, he said, well, we know that they were in Stockport, the, the 10CC studio, but they've moved on, but we don't know where, they, where they've gone to. So that we'd done everything we could to try and get it. But anyway, the, the single went out, I think it was the 7th of February or 14th of February, and McCartney put his one, his version, out uh, a week after. So we had great sales for that week and, you know, plenty of play, and then nothing, absolutely nothing. You know, it just died, you know. about that they wouldn't let us do our own stuff so the next one they came up with was a Rick Derringer number Teenage Love Affair we said oh that's a bit more interesting so we started to include it in our set we eventually went down to to do it we really weren't happy about uh, doing another cover so when we recorded the vocal I thought I'm going to sabotage this so they can't use it so there's one line 
in the song, which was, she's a cute little thing about 16. And I sang 15, knowing that they're going to hear it and go, whoa, <laughs> we, we, we can't put this out, you know. We then had a, a bit of a campaign to get Rebels Rule and get that released as a single. So at that point, our drummer had been a bit of a naughty boy and been thrown out of the band. So Gordon Nicol, who was uh, one of the guitarists in the band, his twin brother came in as drummer, you know, pretty good drummer. So that gave us cover to, to get that done. We'd had that out and then it got to the stage where we just weren't happy at, at DECA. They, they weren't doing anything, they weren't promoting things. They'd come up with the ideas of, oh, we're going to get you songwriters. And they came up with uh, Martin and Coulter, who wrote a lot of stuff for the basic rollers. At that time, there was a lot of uh, predators in the business during the 70s. We were kind of older than a lot of the bands. You know, we were into our 20s, whereas the, you know, the likes of the basic rollers were all sort of mid-teens. You had to be very savvy and keep out of the way of a lot of these people. But there were so many of them in the business. It was, it was just ridiculous, you know. So we didn't want to be dragged into anything associated with the basic rollers. But we had uh, ideas about who would like uh, producing us. I don't know if you remember a band called Sweet. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, they had a producer called Phil Wayman. And we thought, that's, that's a guy we'd really like to do because uh, Sweet, although they could do this real poppy thing, they were also pretty good at the, the more rocky stuff. Yeah. We thought, this guy could be really good for us. So anyway, we eventually got out the contract and I happened to look in Melody Maker a couple of months after. And the the AR department, the publicity department, obviously didn't know we'd left the label. And they started talking about us being hooked up with Phil Wayman. <laughs> You're serious. You know, we've left, we're gone, you know. But uh, oh, it was just absolutely crazy, you know. Uh, the, the, the teenage love, love affair thing, listen to that and listen to Rick Derringer's original version. Uh, I think ours stood up pretty well. We then got to a stage because things weren't happening uh, with the label, the band split and uh, the bass player and one of the guitarists, the, the one that was a twin, they left. I can't remember what the fallout was, but the three of us, uh, uh, John Lovett, Laurie, Laurie Reaver, and myself, although we were still at deck at that point, uh, went down and recorded four demos, and I can play them now and think, 
why did Decker not you know, listen to that and go, that's interesting. Now, what I can do is I can actually play you one of these tracks to give you a flavor of uh, what we were doing. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll stick that on just now and let you hear it now. It's only going to come through the hi-fi system uh, in the room just now, so I don't know what the sound level is going to be like. So okay. uh, let, let you hear this. Here we go. into the next track because that's the one that I was wanting you to hear. Okay. That was great.
Now, seeing as that's the first time uh, you've heard these tracks, can you associate it with anything? You know, does it sound like anybody else? It sounds more like mod or power pop than than glam rock. Like, what year? Yeah. Were, what year were those recorded? Well, that was uh, maybe late '73. Um, wow. Uh, no, '70. No, it'd be '74. It'd be late '74. Wow. We were just writing a lot of stuff like that. We augmented the band with um, a few other musicians and went off to Germany. So when we came back, we had about 14 new tracks and we ended up going down to Stockport to 10CC studio and we recorded pretty much all the backing tracks there. Then we went down to Trident studio in London. At that time, it was one of the major ones. Queen were associated with it. They were almost like the, the house band. Elton John probably recorded there. Uh, Bowie, uh, George Harrison, I think, recorded some solo stuff there. So that was a great studio uh, to work in. Still the best sound system I've ever heard in my life. One one night when the rest of the band were doing backing tracks, I went up up to the uh, the remix suite with one of the tape ops, and he played us the master tape for Genesis, Wind and Wuthering, and he said, right listen to this and then the introduction of the first track we could hear an owl hooting and you can't hear it in the record mm. you can't you can't hear it anything it was just the best sound system ever you know so we, oh, we really really enjoyed uh, that experience down there uh, it was a, a funny story apparently stevie wonder uh, was planning and recording them and the studio manager had come uh, rushing into the, the remix suite and in a panic says, come on, we've got to get this place tidied up. Stevie Wonder's come to see the place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and everybody just turned around and looked at him, you know, some great times, you know. What was that band called? We'd called that Orchids, although the demos that we played were Miami. But I think we'd sort of changed it to, well, it was Black Orchid and then got shortened to Orchid. Let's hear another song recorded by Stuart's band Miami called I'm a Bad Boy.
played a, a few gigs, but gradually things just fell apart. And after that, I'd moved on to a, a residency at one of the nightclubs in Edinburgh, big nightclub in Edinburgh. Then met met my wife at that place, and uh, once we we got married, I just said, "No, it's not safe to keep trying to plug away," you know, because you know it's too much of a a risk. And I decided just to give it up. I've done, you know, maybe a couple of things since then. The last last thing I did was uh, something for my daughter's wedding, the first dance. There was I didn't think there was anything suitable to to dance to because it. You know, some of the things that people come out with is, you know, like my girl. And you're thinking, well, it's not really a father-daughter song. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's a bit inappropriate, you know. So I uh, decided to actually, you know, write something and, and record it for the, the wedding. So it was played through the sound system at the, the wedding, and I just I just sang with it. And the whole whole thing was, was videoed. So, you know, it was, it was pretty good to have that, that memory, you know. Let's hear one more song by Miami called Lindy. Cloudy sky makes me want to run to my love today. Dreary day, I wish she wasn't so far away. Sun is gone, but it could be shining before too long. Close my eyes and dream that we're standing close again. I just want Lindy to know that I really miss her so, I really miss her. She's the one I'm writing to, you know Lindy could be you, I'm telling you she could be. Lonely nights make me wonder if they are here to stay. Starry skies stretching farther than the eye can see. I'm here. Express and Melody Maker were the two main uh, music papers at that time. Mm-hmm. And Melody Maker used to do a page where you know, a big star would come on and review the records. Now, the week that, our, that Rebels Rule came out, it was Elton John that reviewed them. He took half a page to just run us into the ground. And we with, with thought, why did he do that? Must have just been a bad week for him, you know, a total tantrum. It almost killed me. How did I survive? I think what hurt really more was we were big Elton John fans as well, you know. You know, it's quite a few of his albums on, on eight tracks inside the, the van. And we'd, we'd play a lot of his stuff when we were on the road heading, heading to gigs, you know. 
the way that that number came about was uh, the, the other members of the bands lived in the area of Edinburgh called uh, Portobello, which is like the seaside part. That's where the, the beach is uh, for Edinburgh. So there was a, an old cinema. And at that time, you had a lot of uh, gangs. I suppose it's like any, any big city at the time. You just have gang warfare between all the various districts. The one in that area was YPT, Young Porty, or y, YPR, Young Porty Rebels. So somebody had written Rebels Rule on the wall. And then later on, somebody else had sprayed Iron Virgin on the wall. And when we saw it, we went, Rebels Rule. That sounds a good title. <laughs> so that's that's kind of how that came about, you know, from a piece of graffiti. Stand up, stand up, stand up for Rebel Rule. Stand up, stand up, stand up for Rebel Stand up for Rebel Stand up for Rebel Rule. When I think back to when it first started, you know, the very first uh, band that was in, it was a fact that you didn't bother where you made any money. You you only wanted to, to get up on stage. And you'd drive for miles every night in a, a van that probably had, it was unfit for the road. You'd have no tax, no insurance. There was probably a, a, a rusted hole in the, in the floor of the van. You know, it'd be absolutely falling apart. You didn't, you just didn't bother, you know. You just did it, and at that time, you didn't have sort of speed cameras, and the police weren't stopping people every five minutes. You know, it was just just great times. You know, for young guys to to be out in the road and playing gigs, you know, every night. You know. In fact, there was one night we actually played played three gigs in the one night. We played a high school in one of the satellite towns just on the edge of Edinburgh. We then uh, went down the, the coast to a, a seaside town and then came back at midnight to play in one of the big clubs in, in Edinburgh. How we managed that, I'll never know. And we never thought anything about it, you know. There's only one time I ever remember being absolutely dog tired and it was when I was working as a, a roadie with Leather Soul. There must have been about eight flights of stairs up to the to where, we were, uh, where the band were playing, carrying all the gear down, and you get the, the Marshall 4x4s, and you get them up on your shoulders with your thumbs into the, the side handles, and you'd run down the stairs. And you also ran up the stairs when you were going into the game. And anyway, that night, we were going to see uh, Deep Purple, and it was a really late concert. The concert was starting about 11 o'clock, which was kind of unusual at the, at the time. But anyway, we we got up there and uh, sat down. Led Zeppelin, uh, Deep Purple came on stage, and you can just imagine how loud Deep Purple were. They were absolutely deafening. I fell asleep about halfway through the second number and woke up in the middle of the final number of the set. <laughs> absolutely dog tired. You know, I, I just couldn't keep my eyes open. You know. Probably the only person that's ever fallen asleep during a Deep Purple concert. 
<laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Deep Purple. This is the first radio interview I've done. I was just thinking when the last one was, and it has to be over 45 years ago. <laughs> wow. When we did, uh, we did all the, the demos for, you know, where we'd gone to Stockport and uh, Trident, that would have been some, 76 maybe. Well, what, what happened with uh, these tracks, we only got the vocals done uh, on seven of the tracks. The other seven, well, what I used to do was was get cassette uh, tape copies, uh, so just rough mixes on the pretense that we wanted to listen to them overnight. But it was the only way we could uh, get copies of the tapes because they wouldn't release them until the sessions were finished and all the bills were paid. So there was seven of the tracks uh, I got but there was seven that I didn't. And there was one track where we did seven vocals, triple tracked, and by doing, slowing the tapes down, speeding them up, we were able to get a five-part harmony and stretch it to seven. Unfortunately, we didn't get a copy of that. The tapes, the, the masters disappeared. So I think uh, the manager uh, acquired them and no idea what happened to them, which was uh, a bit sad, really. But, uh, you know, the music business is littered with grief and whatnot, you know. So plenty of sad stories that can be be told, you know, with bands getting ripped off and just not getting the breaks. You know, you've, you've got to be in the right place at the right time with the right people. Otherwise... It's, there's no point, you know, you, you just won't succeed. And I think it's happened to, to everybody. That's, that is the sad thing about it. And uh, at the time when we were recording, it was, it really was difficult to, to figure things out, especially if you were kind of naive, you know, you had no previous experience. Uh, you didn't have experience actually dealing with, record company executives, you know, it could be pretty daunting uh, going in. The, f the first time we went to, to DECA, we, we were talking to Dick Rowe, who was sort of head of, uh, I think he was head of A&R at, at the time. And he was the guy who turned the Beatles down. <laughs> I just couldn't keep my mouth shut. And I just says, oh, you're the guy who turned the Beatles down. Uh, <laughs> which probably didn't go down too well. Uh, but the guy was just, he just didn't have a clue. You know, his, his idea at the time when the, when he turned the Beatles down was uh, guitar bands are on the way out. <laughs> yeah. And he thought, uh, well, if on the way out, what's, what's got to replace them? Seriously, you know, that was a, an awkward moment. Um, I think it got even even worse than that. We, we were over doing a, a gig in Luxembourg. Uh, not long before they left the label, and or, or was it? No, it was before. Uh, it was before Jet, 
was, before we had to go back and uh, re-record Jen, we'd gone into this bar and there was a, you know, a, a bunch of English people there and, you know, Londoners and uh, we just sat down and got, got talking away to them. And they were asking about, you know, how we were, how we were doing and uh, what was going on. And I, I said, uh, brought the Dick Rowe story again not realising that his daughter was in the company. <laughs> so once again, you know, be careful, be careful when you open your mouth, you know, uh, you never know who's, who's listening. Uh, the, the kind of things that used to, used to happen. I remember uh, when we went into, uh, we were re-recording uh, something in the studio and I always had huge platforms uh, where the, the heels would be about you know, six inches tall. And I was totally shattered and in front of the uh, the sound desk was a big leather couch. So I'd laying down on the couch. Now I used to wear stage gear everywhere, you know, it, it wasn't just wasn't just in stage. I just dressed like that all the time. <laughs> and uh, so I'm I'm lying there. What they what they'd done was they'd taken uh, gaffer tape, wrapped it round the heels of the boots, and then at one point they shouted for me to get up and do the vocals. Well, you can imagine I I jumped up and immediately <laughs> <laughs> face planted, you know, playing jokes on each other. It was, sometimes it was carnage. Uh, it was another another time I was in the studio and I'm, I'm doing a I was doing a vocal. And it was really late at night. I says, look, could, could we just dim the lights, really dim them? And there was just like a, a, a red light on, a really dull red light. And what I was, I had my back to the the control room door and I'm sitting in this, this stool and I'm really going for it. And what I didn't realise was that one of the band had come out with a, a CO2 fire extinguisher and he put the horn from behind between my legs and then let the extinguisher off. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard how loud these things are. <laughs> <laughs> I was, you just couldn't describe the horror, you know, when, uh, when that happened, you know. But uh, there was a lot of times I was the one who was ending up getting all the, all the nonsense, you know. <laughs> Never regret it, you know, it's always look back with fond memories, you know. So how did the chastity belt, how did that come about? Oh, that's, well, because I, I made uh, all, all the stage gear, I made all my stage gear, but I, I started making some stuff uh, uh, for other members of the, the band, mainly uh, Gordon Nicol, I used to do, do a few things for him. The chassis belt was just—I just thought I am, I am virgin. I'll just—I'll just make something, make something up. It certainly drew attention. <laughs> yeah. um, my mother thought it was a bit strange at the time, but uh, <laughs> no, it was—it uh, was great, and it actually attracted a lot of attention. You know, so I can't really complain about it. You know.
Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. used to do a lot of leather work. At one point, I originally wanted to open a small shop doing uh, leather work, you know, sort of fringe, fringe jackets and sort of moccasin-type boots. You know, I did, did a few things, a couple, couple of things for other bands uh, as far as the sort of moccasin boots were concerned. But sort of fringe, fringe jackets. So it was, it was kind of creative at the time, you know. So... I still remember uh, reading like the first article that came out, maybe in Goldmine or something, where the guy from the Jesus and Mary chain had he coined the phrase "junk shop glam," and then I ordered that Velvet Tin Mine CD. You know, this is back yeah. in like this, like twenty years ago now. Yeah, I've got the, the Velvet Tin Mine uh, CD, but I hadn't I hadn't had that uh, uh, connection. What I did see was obviously from time to time I. You know, I do a Google search and just just see what uh, pops up, and I found uh, Gordon. He had a, a small studio in uh, Houston, and he had a website at the time. He obviously is back here now, and the website's gone. And he had uh, a whole load of uh, press cuttings, and there was one in the Washington Post, but there's quite a few other ones, and it was No Gallagher of Oasis who said that he had uh, uh, Rebels Rule. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he, he praised it highly. And I was, I was really surprised. I thought, oh, no, I wouldn't have thought that was the sort of thing that he would, he would go for. But it was quite interesting to, to see that. But you know, from time to time, I, I see reviews, and I'm still kind of taken aback by you know, the fact that people sort of turn around and say things like, how did this band not make it? You know, why was this not a huge hit? You know, it's just kind of difficult. That uh, second track, I like to hear Geisha Girls, that was that was actually written to take advantage of the Japanese market because we thought the, the Japanese, if you can actually get in there, you can really take off. Obviously, we we didn't get uh, get a record contract. 
uh, to get anything done with that. That had been totally financed by us. When Rebels Rule first came out, we were in a, a, a bar in Edinburgh. And we were up at the bar and there was a bunch of girls came up and started uh, chatting to us. And uh, we could hear that sort of South African accents or, you know, they obviously weren't local. And uh, it turned out that they came from Rhodesia, well, as it was at the time. There was a rebel government there uh, led by Ian Smith. And apparently rebels rule was a bit of a hit there just because, you know, they could make it their anthem. So that was that was kind of an interesting one. You know, I, I really didn't uh, expect anything like that, but uh, I didn't notice any royalties when I, I got a royalty statement. So <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what happened there. <laughs> maybe maybe they, they just weren't uh, paying for the, the stuff or they were doing copies, you know, or whatever. But it's, it's, it's strange when you start finding out years and years later and also the, the fact that, you know, my kids weren't around when I was I was doing all that stuff, and it's only been uh, recently that my my son's heard the stuff, and he's he's been really taken by it. And uh, a couple of times he's he's actually written a reply to somebody when you know when you know they've written something online. You know. you uh you said that Rebels Rule was inspired by that graffiti. So did did the whole band write the song together? Do you remember the writing of the song? Well, the main writer was uh, Laurie Reva, who was a guitarist, really good guitarist. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the stuff was written by him, but later on, well, there's there's B-sides. Ain't No Clown was uh, essentially Marshall Bain, who's the bass player. after that was credited as Iron Virgin, so we all made something out of it. Because essentially, you know, somebody can come along with an idea, but by the time everybody's put their two cents in, you know, it's yeah. uh, it's a collective effort, you know. There was one track that uh, I wrote that was uh, one of these uh, four uh, demos, and I was actually on a bus travelling between my house and uh, Laurie's house where we would rehearse. And uh, I literally wrote it on the, the bus in a cigarette packet and trying hard to remember the, the melody all the way, you know, because it was probably, you know, maybe half an hour, 40 minutes uh, to get down there. But it was, you know, 
quite a, a few that we would we would write, but the main writer was was probably Laurie, to be fair. Although I always felt that uh, you know I'd, I'd rather have a a three minute single rather than a four minute single. It's got a a minute of choruses repeated over and over again mm-hmm. at the end of the number, you know. But uh, you know that was that was his only only fault, you know. The, uh, some of the stuff just really good, and the guitar work was just just great, you know. Really like that, but uh, yeah, the the recording yeah. of Rebels Rule it sounds amazing. It's a uh, who produced who produced that? Well, that was uh, Nick uh, Nick Tober, right? Uh, who was Thin Lizzy's right. uh, guy in their their early early days when they moved on. I think they'd left uh, left the label and gone on and to another company. They obviously had another uh, producer. But he certainly produced, you know, like whiskey in a jar and stuff like that. Uh, we we really liked the way that that had been done. Uh, we always tended to do things a lot faster, and you know, there was always a, a right drive with a lot of the, the stuff that we we wrote ourselves. But uh, when when I listen back to to this this stuff, I just I just feel that it's a shame that the stuff didn't get a proper airing at, at the time because I still think uh, some of the stuff stands up and it's different to what anybody else was doing and certainly at the time you know in, in the seventies nobody was doing anything like that at all. You said the the orchid songs were recorded in nineteen seventy four. That no, the, the the orchid ones they were they were recorded uh, later because they were recorded after we left the the label. Although, uh, oh no, uh, Miami Miami ones were just oh, yeah. before we left the label. Uh, that was the, the four demos, uh, but the rest of the stuff was uh, probably seventy five, seventy six. So, Geisha Girl yeah. was recorded. You were called Miami when you recorded it, but then you changed the uh, name yeah, to Orchid. Yeah. What happened was while we were in Germany, an Irish group called the Miami Show Band, the IRA shot two or three of them. It's like they ambushed them. Oh yeah, I, rem- I think I remember that story. Shot two or three of them. Yeah. So because we we had uh, Miami, we thought, no, we're going to change it. But we changed it to Miami three hundred five, and three hundred five is the the area code, you know, phone code for Miami. So uh, we changed it to that, but then. Uh, once we expanded the the band, we, we brought in. Uh, this was when we expanded the band. We then went off to tour in Germany. So John Lovett was was back in the the band again, and I, I can't remember who who was the bass player. I, oh, it was uh, oh, I've forgotten his name, Mike. Uh, he played in a a band called Child. Mm-hmm. Which is also a kind of teeny bop. Yeah, I know that band. I actually used to have the records. So he, yeah, yeah, he was the the bass player mm-hmm. in that. Uh, Mike Mike McKenzie. So he was he was playing with us, and we had a a young guy who was just a child prodigy called Rick Tadman, and he was only fifteen at the time. So technically he shouldn't have been with us in Germany because I don't know if you had to be 16 to work in a club there. So it's kind of like the, 
the George Harrison scenario with the Beatles when they, they played in Hamburg. Uh, Harrison got sent home. That was a great learning curve for us to uh, to go over there because we did a, a residency for about three weeks in uh, in one place uh, in Kiel, and you know before moving to to other places. And it was just it was just fantastic playing to a, a foreign audience. They just loved it, you know. And because we were picking up on uh, new releases, we, were, we started doing all sorts of stuff. Like the Bee Gees had uh, brought out Jive Talking, and we started playing that. And after we'd done our, God knows how many sets, we would end up uh, going down to the, the docks, where there was a, a club down there, a big bar. And we'd go in, and a lot of these people had actually been in to, to see us earlier. And they thought that this was our original material, you know, so we were, we were doing all kinds of stuff, you know. But even when, when we started doing uh, all the Orchid stuff, it was almost like whatever anybody came up with, we recorded it just to see what happened. So there's, there's two really funky numbers, which was kind of like one of them you would probably say average white band. Uh, but there was another number where some of the lyrics were in French. It was almost like Charles Aznavour could have, have done it, you know. We had such a variety of stuff. So in a way, it was kind of like uh, when the Beatles first started, they were influenced by so many different things. You know, they were in influenced by things that their parents listened to, even like the Rolling Stones. When you listen to a lot of the Rolling Stones bands, they're a country band. There's so much country influence in in their sort of early stuff. Uh, you know, Keith Richards is just steeped in in sort of country licks, you know, as well as all this sort of bluesy stuff. So it was kind of interesting to just say, oh, you know, we'll just record anything and see what happens. You know, you, you never know. You know, the craziest idea you could end up coming up with something that was was just brilliant. You know, I'm going to see if I can. Find this, uh, find this track. So Miami mm. recorded those four demos, and then Orchid had the fourteen songs that you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. I'll let you hear the two soul ones. This is Orchid. Yeah. The guitar's just going across the, the stereo. When we did it and tried and you could actually trace it on the floor in a figure of eight in front of the, the Cadex speakers. But what was even more strange was the sound went out beyond the speakers. It was really weird.
that shows you how how different that is. <laughs> Sounds like you had a uh, hell of a band. That could have been, you know, a film soundtrack. You know, has that sort of sound to it, you know, where it's almost like shafts kind of era, you know. But there, there's so many things. There was there was no two two songs were were the same, you know. We just you know, we just tried to keep it keep it different and just write as much stuff as, as possible. But that one was uh, when we recorded that, we had uh, a brass section uh, brought into uh, studios in Stockport. The session wasn't going too well. The brass players just, they weren't getting it at all. We sent the roadie across to the pub across the road and came back with a, a big tray of uh, beers. And our beer is a lot stronger than American beer. And <laughs> once, once they've had a, a few pints, you know, they, they loosened up, you know, so they, they finally got it. We managed to get a string section in from the Halley Orchestra, which is the, the orchestra from Manchester. Um, they came in, they were, they were really good as well. Once again, you know, the difference between them and the brass section was the the brass section, once they got oiled up a bit, you know, they just just played. Whereas the string section just read the dots. You know, there was no feeling in it, just read the dots. So it was, it was pretty good uh, involving something like that because it certainly wasn't something that any other bands around us were, were doing. There's, there's another track that's kind of like ELO because it's got the, the string section on it. Occasionally, I like to stick these these tracks on again and think, well, you know, it's a pity we didn't do something with them. You know, they, they just got sort of put to one side and you know, forgotten about. I'll put this track on. This is the one that's got the string section.
was a great song by Stewart's band Orchid called Stevie Doll. Now back to the interview with Stuart Harper. That was great. It was kind of written about one of the girls that worked in the NR department at Decca. You know, very attractive girl, you know. But it's that sort of manic thing where it's like the, the kind of thing where kids used to have, you know, girls used to have dolls where you would pull a string and it would operate, you know, Mommy, I love you, you know, that, that kind of thing. So we ended up uh, doing that at the, at the end, you know, but it's, I'm not sure whether it's a doll or whether it's this girl, you know, but the strings were really nice in it, you know, it shows you from the stuff that I've played you, it shows you how, how different the, a lot of the stuff was. We, we weren't kind of stuck into, you know, a certain uh, niche. Uh, it, does, it does show you the variety of stuff that we, we did. This is another song by Orchid called Baby Come Over. must have been pretty amazing in the early 2000s when the junk shop glam thing happened and like 30 years later all of a sudden your band was getting all kinds of attention well i was the only one that actually knew about it the rest of the band they weren't aware of it at all john lovett i don't know if he's actually alive he came over here probably about 10 or 11 years ago 
with his wife and he, I know that he'd originally been in Toronto but I think at that time he'd moved to LA and uh, his talent was spraying cars you know doing body work mm-hmm. but very very creative the real sort of hot rod stuff that people were paying a fortune for although I'm quite sure that a, a lot of places just get their car wrapped nowadays uh, rather than getting them uh, painted uh, but he was he was doing that but I've I've emailed him a couple of times over the years since then and haven't had a reply and I know at the time uh, I think he'd had a, a bypass I had a, bi- a triple bypass uh, six years ago uh, funnily enough it was uh, five weeks before my daughter's wedding I'd been in for a week prior to the op uh, had the op and then for two weeks, they were trying to stabilise me. The bass player, he owns a complex in Edinburgh, uh, you know, bars and function suites. I've seen Gordon, you know, a few years ago. I just, just lost contact with any of them. And, and it gets to the stage where if somebody's not going to make the effort to contact me, well, I just think, well, you've had your chance, you know, I'll, I'll do it. And then, if they don't reciprocate, I just think oh, this isn't this isn't working. So um, that's how we end up uh, losing losing touch. Uh, Laurie Riva, uh, I haven't seen him for uh, quite a few years. He had he's had a, a number of studios during the, the sort of nineties, and that's where I, I recorded uh, some stuff. There's uh, there's a track that that he got me in to do Breaking Down the Walls of Heartache. Uh, I did a, a version of that with two girls that did a lot of uh, backing vocals uh, during that time. Breaking down the Let's hear another unreleased song by Orchid called I'm Amazed. 
This is another song recorded by Stewart's band Orchid, but previously unreleased, called I'm in Heaven. Thank okay. you so much for talking to me. It was great. Great talking to you, Brian. Thanks. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Right. Bye. Bye. And now to play us out. What does that mean? To play us out. I don't know what that means to play us out. What does that mean? To end the show? Yeah. I'm going to leave you with a solo recording by Stuart Harper, previously unreleased, called Hot Lover.
rebels rule, we tried to get it, uh, you know, but when it gets to the end, it goes, uh, stand up, stand up, stand up. We tried to get it to run into the, the final groove so that when the needle's going round, we just keep keep playing that line. Right. You think we could get it to work? That's why it ended up just being stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up. And we wanted to just to play forever until you switched off. Stand up, stand up, stop, 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 It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.